0: This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA.
1: And a very happy Friday afternoon to you. Shortly, you are off to Greenbushes, which is about 240 kilometres south of Perth where the owners of an historic mill says it's going to be closing the facility next Friday, which means more than 50 employees will lose their jobs. More details shortly for you on that. Also, uh, catching up with the Shadow Agriculture Minister, Shadow Federal Agriculture Minister, Julie Collins, who is confirming that uh, she has plans to end the live sheep trade if Labor is successful at this month's federal election, but not saying at this stage when that ban would come into place. More from the Shadow Minister before news headlines at half past 12 today. And speaking of live exports, the federal member for O'Connor says he has documents which reveal Animals Australia paid $148,000 to a whistleblower who provided the footage of distressed and dead sheep on board the Awasi Express in 2017. Now, the footage ultimately led to a moratorium on sheep exports during the Northern Hemisphere summer, and that moratorium started in 2019. Rick Wilson says the paperwork shows the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment was aware of the payments, despite an investigation by the department which concluded the footage was not contrived and no illegal payments were made. Rick Wilson, what documents do you have to prove the claims that you're making today?
2: Uh, Belinda, I had uh, some uh, hard copy documents hand-delivered to me uh, anonymously, uh, which is a statutory declaration by uh, Animals Australia's Lynn White uh, and a series of bank statements uh, and other financial transaction records uh, clearly showing that uh, payments were made to Mr Fazar uh beginning in, in late 2015 and uh, continuing right through until 2020.
1: Why are you so keen to reveal the detail in these documents?
2: Well, your listeners would be well aware of the damage that this particular uh, footage has inflicted on the industry. Uh, reputationally uh, for the exporters uh, and and including producers have been caught up in this there's been financial penalties I guess for producers uh, with uh, lower prices received in sale yards during periods of suspension Uh, we now have a summer moratorium Uh, so it is you know very important uh, to my uh, producers and constituents in the electorate of O'Connor
1: some might argue that it's irrelevant if payments were made or not to the whistleblower as long as the treatment of the sheep on board the vessel was revealed.
2: Well, there was a second whistleblower who didn't receive quite as much uh, coverage as uh, Mr Ulal, who alleged that uh, Mr Ulal, who was in charge of that particular deck, uh, may have been negligent in his duties in terms of providing sufficient ventilation uh, and keeping pens clean and other duties that he was required to do. So, given that Mr. Ulal received 107 thousand US dollars, uh, which equates to around 148 thousand dollars over a considerable period, I, I, I just think that that does throw some uh, some questions that need to be answered in terms of how that footage was uh, was arrived at.
1: And you're saying that the payments to the whistleblower began in 2015. So two years before the footage of the shipment of sheep in question in 2017. Is that right?
2: That's right. So Mr Ulal was working as a cadet on uh, one of the live export boats. He, uh, he was in communication with Lynn White. Uh, he claimed that he was so distressed by the treatment of the sheep that he was no longer uh, going to walk, work on the boats. Uh, he, he then left Uh, working on the boats I think sometime in 2016 and then took up a nine-month contract to go back working on the live sheep boats uh, just prior to him uh, producing this footage of the Aussie Express incident.
1: Animals Australia has responded today and has just sent through a media statement. It says, we are deeply disappointed by the leaking of a confidential court document and the ongoing clear strategy to intimidate a key witness in a major animal cruelty prosecution. It says, this is designed to distract from the shocking cruelty he so courageously documented and that has been systemic to the live sheep trade over many years. Uh, he goes on to say, the facts are that two and a half million sheep have unnecessarily suffered and died on live-export ships. One man had the courage and compassion to show the Australian public what sheep have endured. What do you say to that?
2: Well, I'd say to that, that if Mr Ular was uh, deeply disturbed by the treatment of the animals on the live export boats, uh, he shouldn't have made an inducement of $140,000 Australian to come forward and uh, make his case. I mean, uh, the regulator, uh, the, the um, Australian Department of Agriculture, I'm sure would have been very interested to speak to Mr Ulal, uh and uh, take on board any concerns that he had over the treatment of uh, sheep on the various voyages that he'd been on. The fact that he received $140,000 from Animals Australia certainly casts serious doubt over the evidence uh, that he provided.
1: But it doesn't prove that he exaggerated the footage or set anything up. It was contrived in any manner, does it, even though the payment was made?
2: It doesn't prove it, uh, Belinda, but no court in the world would accept evidence uh, from someone who had been paid such an extraordinary amount of money for a Pakistani deckhand to, uh, you know, provide this video evidence. I mean, it, uh, it is tainted evidence in any legal system anywhere in the world.
1: What do these documents reveal about the Federal Department of Agriculture, which investigated the claims at the time and found no evidence of an illegal whistleblower payment or fabricated cruelty on board the livestock ship?
2: This is a very serious question for me as a member of the Federal Parliament. I had... Uh, I had previously received documentation, bank statements and others, which I had uh, brought to light. Uh, I was visited by two investigators from the uh, Department of Agriculture in my office in Canberra. Uh, I was joined by one of my colleagues, uh, the member for Barker, Tony Passon, a very uh, distinguished lawyer, uh, and we spent half an hour asking questions around uh, the bank statements that we had in our possession, and we were um, possibly 100 times told uh, that we cannot comment this is the investigators, could not comment because they had a non-disclosure agreement with Animals Australia. Now, how they arrived at uh, that non-disclosure agreement, I'm not sure. I'm very pleased that we now have full disclosure. Uh, These documents, uh, which I've had in my possession for some time, are now in the public domain, uh, which is why I'm now happy to to discuss those documents. Uh, And I will be asking uh, questions of uh, the Department of Agriculture. So
1: you're 100%... In your mind, certain that the Department of Agriculture knew full well that Animals Australia had paid this whistleblower that amount of money, $148,000, and still concealed that information from making it public?
2: Uh, I am 100% sure. The documents that I have received are a statutory declaration and other financial records. Uh, that were provided to the Department of Agriculture. Now, they may be forgeries. uh, I don't know. And I'm happy for the Department of Agriculture uh, if these uh, documents uh, aren't uh, legitimate documents to come forward and and say that. But at this stage, uh, post the story appearing in today's media, uh, I haven't seen any uh, denials by the uh, Department of Agriculture that these documents aren't legitimate. So I would have to assume uh, that they are... uh, documents that have been in the possession of the Department of Agriculture since 2019.
1: So why wouldn't the Department reveal that information?
2: Uh, That is a question you'll have to put the Department. I will certainly be asking those questions uh, when Parliament returns uh, post-election, if I'm fortunate enough to be there.
1: How does it reflect on your coalition government, though, which was in power on watch at the time of the incident and the investigation?
2: Well, look. The minister can only respond uh, with the advice that's given him to the department. So, if he's been given uh, advice uh, that, uh, in this particular case, that no money changed hands and that the the footage uh, provided uh, to Animals Australia was untainted, uh, then that's the advice the minister has to go with. I'm sure he's equally as as keen as I am uh, to get to the bottom of uh, these documents and uh, how the department could have spent the last three years denying uh, that any money had changed hands when they clearly had. Uh, documentation uh, that showed that money had changed hands.
1: And how should the live sheep trade reflect on what you're revealing today?
2: Well, look, the live sheep trade's suffered some some grievous damage to their reputation. Uh, uh, export numbers are well down since, uh, you know, prior to the Awasah Express incident. And, you know, the free market is uh, is playing out across my electorate. Uh, the local process are paying very good money for sheep. Uh, but the live exporters are in the market uh, bidding on all of those sheep and every sheep that's sold in this state is benefits from uh, having those live exporters in the market. So I'll be doing whatever I can uh, to keep those uh, live exporters uh, operating in the market, buying West Australian sheep and exporting them in a safe and sustainable way.
1: Rick Wilson, thanks for being part of the show today.
2: It's a pleasure, Belinda.
1: Rick Wilson, here's the federal member for O'Connor. Quarter past 12 here on the Country Hour and requests were made to the Federal Department of Agriculture for an interview. Haven't had a response back from the Federal Department at this point. I also requested an interview with Animals Australia. Instead, I was sent an email. I read part of that response, that email response to you during that chat with Rick Wilson. I'll just give you the rest of it. It says, "'We are deeply disappointed by the leaking of a confidential court document and the ongoing clear strategy to intimidate a key witness in a major animal cruelty prosecution.'" Animals Australia said this is designed to distract from the shocking cruelty he so courageously documented and that has been systemic to the live sheep trade over many decades. The facts are that two and a half million sheep have unnecessarily suffered and died on live export ships. One man had the courage and compassion to show the Australian public what sheep have endured. Animals Australia goes on to say without his bravery, export companies would have continued to ship sheep during the Middle Eastern summer months, despite knowing the dire consequences the sheep would face. This attempt to deflect responsibility from egregious cruelty presents a clear example as to why whistleblowers and prosecution witnesses in this country need to be afforded the highest levels of protection. Animals Australia has always willingly and openly cooperated with authorities and will continue to do so. Our conduct has been deemed appropriate by both federal and state authorities. That is the response from Animals Australia. Seventeen past twelve. You can be part of the conversation too on the text this afternoon. Zero double four eight-nine double two six zero four. If you've got something to say, shoot through a text and be part of the conversation. Well, Labor has confirmed its plan to end live sheep exports if it wins this month's federal election, but it won't say when the ban would come into place. The opposition confirmed its plan in a written statement yesterday after an animal rights group went public with the policy earlier in the week. National Rural reporter Kath Sullivan spoke with the Shadow Agriculture Minister Julie Collins about this decision a short time ago.
3: Well, what we want to do is work with the West Australian government and with the industry on what a transition looks like uh, for the live sheep exports. Uh, what we know is, is that this industry has been in decline over the last 20 years. And what we want to do is do more adding along the whole value chain here in Australia. We want to create more jobs from the sector here in our country.
4: Will you set a deadline for the phase out of the live sheep trade? And will it be in the next term of parliament, assuming you're elected?
3: What we want to do is work with industry and the West Australian Government on what the options are, what we need to put in place and how we're going to do that. Uh, so we don't want to put a time frame on it. It will take some time. What we don't want to do is pull the rug out from under uh, the sheep farmers in Western Australia. And what we want to do is make sure that we've got everything in place, uh, that we have the transition ready before that occurs.
4: What assurances can you give the live cattle
3: export trade that you won't look to phase it out? We're absolutely not doing anything about live cattle. Uh, This is about sheep export industry, an industry that has been in decline for the past 20 years. When you look at 2019, 1.1 million sheep, uh, last calendar year, 575,000 sheep going overseas. This industry is in decline. What we need to do is work with the sector and work with the Western Australian government on what options there are for a transition along the entire value chain and how we support that and what we need to put in place.
4: But there are a number of reasons why less sheep have been exported in more recent years, including the northern moratorium, uh, the moratorium for the northern summer, and, of course, the exceptional prices that growers could get on the east coast of Australia.
3: Well, what we've seen, though, is, is over 20 years is a decline. There's only been two years in the last 20 where that hasn't occurred. Uh, this is the reality of what's happening in this sector. And what we need to do is more adding here in Australia. That's why Labor's put aside $500 million from our National Reconstruction Fund for Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries, so that we can do more valuating and create more jobs here in Australia and do more here in this country.
4: How is it that an animal rights group announced your policy publicly before you did, just weeks out from a federal election?
3: Well, what we've been doing is consulting with people right across the the sectors, uh, talking to people about uh, this uh, decision that we have made uh, but essentially we have been talking to people for a long time uh, we've said of course when the draft report came out about the northern summer Band that we would not be relaxing it uh, I've been very clear at the press club just a few weeks ago that we would do nothing about cattle uh, I have been as upfront as I possibly can there with people along the way it's no secret it was our position in 2019 uh, what we're doing here differently it's not putting a time frame on it because we want to work with sector and with the western Australian government so that we We can make sure that we get this right.
4: Do you regret that the animal rights group uh, announced your policy before you had a chance to confirm it? Uh,
3: What we want to do is work with everybody in the sector and the industry. We want to make sure that we get this right. We want to work with people to make sure that we address this decline and that we create more jobs here in Australia.
1: Julie Collins is the Shadow Agriculture Minister. Agriculture Minister David Littleproud says Australian farmers have been given a glimpse of how they'll be treated under an Albanese government, hearing they've lost their livelihoods after activists are told. He says he was proud to have reformed the industry and he'll continue to back Western Australian farmers. He says Labor's plan would cut 3,000 jobs. 21 past 12. On the text in response to this, Jason in Esperance says, so the Labor Party has taken the move to shut down the live sheep trade after consulting with animal rights groups, but haven't bothered to talk to Western Australian farmers. Sounds like the forestry industry all over again. Albanese can't even say when they'll shut the trade down. Any chance of getting Alana McTiernan on to try and explain what they're expecting. Well, Jason, Elena McTinnon's over in Europe at the moment at a hydrogen conference, so maybe that conversation uh, set aside for a later date. This from Richard, who says, I believe the Labor commitment to ban the live export of sheep would be a serious threat to the wool industry. And this, why doesn't the government ban exporting iron ore and only export processed material from iron ore? Labor left is dumb says this text. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four is the text to have your say this afternoon. Well with all the talk about the live export industry, the northern cattle industry is on edge. As you just heard, the Labor Party has says it won't make changes to the live cattle trade but it's still got industry nervous about how long that position will stand. Jock Warriner runs Top End Mustering, a helicopter company that services the Kimberley pastoral sector. He says the news is concerning.
0: The live export trade, I know they're talking about sheep at the moment, but again, you let let governments get too heavily involved in industry and they start with sheep. Well, you know, what is next? Is cattle next and how does it work? Since that lockdown of the trade... There has been amazing inroads made in the SCAS system, in the welfare systems at the other end, in, in how the ships pull together, the stocking densities, the veterinarian procedures on this side. You know, it's it's proof number one of our industry's desire to be sustainable into the future and that the care and welfare of you know, of our livestock is first and foremost – but number two, it's, it's just so important. You, you take away the billions of dollars of, of GDP that comes from the LiveX industry, you try and bring that back domestically into a labour-starved country in a post-pandemic arena, I, I actually think it would be madness to start down that path now. So absolutely concerning.
5: What impact would it have on your business if LiveX was phased out
0: Look, it's a bit hard to say uh if you're going to continue running livestock in the north they do need mustering uh what that looks like it comes back to labor it comes back to to many different aspects but but ultimately if you start pulling revenue out of a system if you start taking margins out of any economic wheel well there's going to be cost cutting if you don't cut costs you go broke the whole system fails in the beef industry particularly the northern industry way back in the BTEC days, has proven its resilience, has proven its ability to adapt. So it's, we, we'd just be a part of that. We'd have to adapt. We'd have to change. We'd have to adjust what we do, what that looks like. Uh, I haven't actually, uh, I, don't, I don't have a, a single answer for it, but it's, um, we just have to find a way to survive.
1: Top End Mustering, Jock Warriner speaking with Steph Sinclair. 25 past 12 news headlines is not far away at half past 12, then checking weather conditions right around Western Australia. First, though, this morning, the owners of an historic timber mill at Greenbushes announced it will close the facility next Friday, which means more than 50 employees will lose their job. Greenbushes is just north of Bridgetown, so about 240 kilometres south of Perth. The town's green and dry mill is owned by Parkside. Adele Farina is the acting CEO of the Forest Industries Federation of WA, and she says it's a very sad day for the industry.
6: I understand that the workforce at Green Bushes were informed of this decision this morning. Approximately 50 people um, have been stood down. Uh, the Parkside Nanup and Manjumup mills will continue to operate though. Uh, and I've been authorised on behalf of Parkside owners and board members to um, communicate the fact that they are all devastated and disappointed about having been forced to make this decision. And they have conveyed their disappointment at the state government for its decision to end native forestry and for failing to deliver adequate supplies so that those so that green bushes could continue to operate.
7: Fifty staff, is that the entire workforce? Look, I understand that fifty um,
6: workers have been stood down today um, and that um, some other workers will continue at that site for a little bit longer and some may be relocated to other sites.
7: Will more redundancies follow?
6: I, I think that's a, a strong possibility. Parkside are doing their absolute best to minimise the number of redundancies that have to be made um, and to look after their workers through what is a very,
7: very difficult process. Now, you say they were forced into this decision. What do you mean by that?
6: Look, the, when the government made, or the Premier made, the decision to cease native forestry by the end of 2023, He said very clearly that it would be business as usual to the end of 2023, and it's been anything but that. The government has stood on the supply hose um, and um, has restricted supply to mills since making that decision. We know that there are coops that have been prepared and approved for harvesting that are higher-yielding coops, yet the government is not allowing um, those coops to be allocated to contractors. So contractors are being sent to low-yielding coops.
7: When you say they're restricting it, what are they doing specifically that means mills can't get their hands on the logs they need? Um, Well, the government allocates
6: the coop to the harvest contractor um, to go and harvest. And and so they can only go where they've been instructed to go by government. But there are higher-yielding coops that could be accessed. Uh, but a government decision has been made not to access those coops.
7: And how does this relate to the state government's ban on native logging?
6: Well, I think it's extremely disappointing um, because the, go- the government, the Premier in particular, committed to business as usual um, and therefore every effort to provide the contracted volumes of timber should be continuing until the end of 2023, but that is
7: not the case. As far as how the Greenbushes mill was running before this announcement was made, was the writing on the wall for them before this announcement? Oh, absolutely not. No, absolutely anything
6: but that. Uh, The government went out of its way to encourage Parkside to invest in Western Australia as a result of that encouragement and assurances, Parkside have invested over $75 million into purchasing and improving the Greenbush's Nanup and Manchamup mills. Um, that's a massive investment by, um, you know, for any company um, to make. And you don't make that sort of investment lightly. Um, and this decision was has been a very bitter pill for Parkside and the industry to swallow. Um, and Parkside's made a massive investment and we'll never realise the investment that it's made in Western Australia.
7: Do you hold fears for the NANAP and Manjimup Parkside facilities as well?
6: I hold fears for all of the sawmills um, going forward. I mean, the reality is the government has made a decision to cease native forestry by the end of 2023. And the reality is that this is just the beginning of uh, a number of sawmills. Over the next eighteen
7: months, having to make the decision to close. Has the company or has the Forest Industries Federation got any indication from the government about whether its workers, the workers at Parkside Greenbushes, will be eligible for any of that compensation that's being offered? The workers at Parkside are definitely eligible, provided they
6: meet the uh, the redundancy criteria, and that is that they've worked at the mill for more than a year, Um, they are eligible. Even if they've only worked on a casual basis, they will still be eligible for a portion of the payout. The the issue is that the government was uh, in the process of establishing an online portal for workers to be able to lodge their applications to access that money. That portal isn't up and running yet. FIFWA has been in discussions with the government in recent weeks, um, calling on the government to ensure that as people are made redundant, they're able to access the packages. And if that needs to be processed manually, then so be it. And the government have been responsive on that basis. And I've been in talks with the minister's office this morning um, to ensure that every support is being offered to the workers at Greenbushes.
1: Adele Farina, the acting CEO of the Forest Industries Federation of WA. Jenny Mountford is the Bridgetown Greenbushes Shire president and says this announcement is a real blow to the community.
8: Oh, well, of course, that's a, a devastating blow to, to, to any town and particularly a small town such as that, um, And I assume there will be some spread across both Greenbushes and Bridgetown too. There's been a large employer um, in the area alongside Taliesin, of course. So, yes, it will will definitely have an impact.
7: Are there fears that these people will move away from the town now that they don't have a job?
8: Who knows? Um, That would obviously be personal decisions from people, whether there'd be um, possibilities of taking up employment at Taliesin who are in an expansion situation there. Um, I don't know, we would have to explore that.
7: Economically, what does the closure of the mill mean for the towns of Greenbushes and Bridgetown?
8: There will be some impact, I'm sure. Both towns are buoyant though, so um, I don't see it being a devastating blow to the town's economy necessarily. Um, it's more the impact on the personal, personal lives of the people involved, really.
1: Jenny Mountford, the Bridgetown Green Greenbush's Shire president, talking to Jackie Lynch. At this stage, we haven't been able to talk to anyone from Parkside. 28 minutes to one here on the Country Hour and time for an update from the newsroom with Tony Carr.
9: Good afternoon, Belinda. Western Australia has recorded 9,328 new cases of COVID-19. The case numbers are down from yesterday's record-breaking milestone, topping 10,000 for the first time. Today's figures bring WA's total to 48,834. There are currently 282 people in hospital with the virus, including nine in intensive care. A major timber mill in WA southwest are set to close ahead of the state government's plans to ban native logging in 2024. It's understood 50 staff at the Parkside timber mill in Greenbushes will lose their jobs when the facility closes next week. CEO of the Forest Industries Federation of WA, Adele Farina, says it's a sign of what's to come. And publishers say the rising cost of newsprint is threatening the survival of regional newspapers. Australian Community Media owns 140 mastheads around Australia and says it's been quoted an 80% price rise from July the 1st. Country Press Australia represents around 190 country publications and says their costs have also gone up suddenly. Belinda, more news at one o'clock.
1: Tony, thank you so much for the update. Appreciate that. 26 to one still to come between now and the news at one. Danny Burkett along just before one with a look at this week's wall market, which is up. So you would have done quite nicely if you have been selling wool this week. And also you are going to meet the 2022 WA Rural Woman of the Year. She is from Denmark. Her name is Louise O'Neill and she runs a personal training and online classes for farmers trying to get you fit. You'll meet her shortly here on the Country Hour. Right now, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Angeline Prasad has all the details this afternoon. Angeline, can we start with a look around the Southwest Land Division? How are conditions today?
10: Good afternoon, Belinda. Yes, it's been beautiful, beautiful autumn weather thanks to a big fat high that's been sitting in the... um, in the uh, southern ocean now this high is starting to move off to the east so we will start to see slightly warmer temperatures this weekend including for mother's day um and um so it has been quite cool across the southwest land division but we'll see daytime temperatures rise a few degrees uh, over the weekend so getting into the mid mid to high 20s overnight the temperatures will uh Still slip down to the um, single digits across most places, especially through inland areas. Um, and then um, on Sunday around lunchtime, we will see a weak cold front that will bring a few showers to the um, to the southwest district. Um, and. Pers- potentially a thunderstorm as well. So not expecting much rainfall, just a few millimetres. It's only going to be in the southwest uh, district that we'll see some precipitation, and that should slip off to the southeast. So the benign conditions will continue into Monday across the um, southwest land division and further east. However, on, from Tuesday, Wednesday, we'll see a stronger cold front that will approach the southwest land division, and that's going to bring some rainfall. So generally at this stage we're thinking about 15 to 40 millimetres along the western South Coast, so a return to wintry conditions sort of middle of next week, um, and um. And once that front goes through, we'll see the next ridge come through on Friday or Saturday at this stage. Across the north of the state, um, last day for showers and thunderstorms from tomorrow, we'll see a dry easterly flow develop across the Kimberley, uh, the Pilbara and the north interior. And that means sunny conditions right into um, well into next week. So drier weather is in store for the north of the country well into next week.
1: And Angeline, just on that rain that you were mentioning that's coming sort of into next week and it's going to hit the sort of south coast and west coast, I think you were saying, is it going to get far inland to those farmers in those agricultural areas?
10: Yes. So in the west and southwest coast, we're generally expecting sort of, you know, up to 40 millimetres. There might be isolated heavier falls up to 50 or even higher along the west southwest coast. Now, normally what happens is when fronts move inland, they do tend to weaken. So there will still be rain across the southwest land division, but I'm thinking more in the 5 to 20 millimetre. Uh, rain.
1: Great, thank you for that. Okay, and then the warnings this afternoon, what can you see?
10: So the only warnings that are out for this afternoon are the marine warnings. So we've got strong warning for the Pilbara and Kimberley coasts. Um, It's likely to continue into tomorrow and those those fresher easterly winds will probably maintain uh, coastal wind warnings for the West Kimberley into the weekend and early next week.
1: Angeline, thank you so much, really appreciate that. It is 23 to 1 here on the Country Hour, just checking the rainfall now, so the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning and the most rainfall recorded was in the Eucola district. So just two mils at Air and two mils at Red Rocks Point. 22 to 1. This week on Landline, painting the beauty of the Monero region.
10: I'm just looking and trying to do my best to get the truest picture of this beautiful landscape.
11: And meet the harvest yachty. Being on a yacht you have to be resourceful, resilient and that helps on the farm because you can problem solve when something breaks.
1: That's Landline 1230 Sunday on ABC TV. The 2022 Rural WA Women's Award has gone to a Denmark farm fitness coach for her work helping people with their mental and their physical health. Louise O'Neill runs personal training and online classes for farmers, with a special focus on getting people talking as well as moving. She says she's got clients as far away as the Solomon Islands. We had a lovely
12: evening, so um, the winners were announced, and then we got a chance to talk last night. It was a little bit of a whirlwind, and I'm just over the moon. I don't. I'm sat here with my husband, and he's... You know, saying this is amazing and, and all the opportunities, and I believe it, it's just taking a while to sink in. But uh, one of the things last night I said, and this thing I said this morning, is I just think it's a great platform to keep talking about mental health and wellness, and that's one of the best things to come out of, of this award. And AgriFutures are amazing, they're so supportive with everything they have done so far and will continue to do. So I'm just so excited for for the next year and further.
13: Tell me a bit about the relationship between mental and physical health because you've spoken there a bit about mental health, but you're a, you know, you're, you're sort of running a fitness business. So what sort of work can people do to really bring them together and make the most of both?
12: Once we start to move, we, there's so many advantages. It releases the endorphins in our bodies. It can balance out our hormones. And it's just a very, very good stress reliever. It can take your mind off of what's going on in your day especially if you find something that can ground you especially if you find something that you really really enjoy doing you know when you start to feel stronger in yourself when you when you start to feel fit and you start to feel healthy that does amazing things for our confidence it does amazing things for um, how we see the day and how we can process everything that happens in the day so i just think it's an integral part to our well-being in in general
13: what sort of area are you are you working with, and how isolated are some of your clients?
12: At the moment, I have a, uh, quite a few in the wheat Wheatbelt. Got a couple over in Brisbane, and then I've even have one from uh, the Solomon Islands. So it's it's really it at the moment it's pretty local to WA, but there, there is no limits. You know, we we can help, hopefully everyone in rural locations.
13: I've seen as well that you sometimes go out to people's farms and work with them personally. Do you have to get creative with the sorts of work you do?
12: You do but once you realise what's around you it becomes a lot easier Um, and it's just a case of finding out what's there. I talk a lot about incidental exercise to them you know, if you've got to check water troughs, park your ute further away and make that walk. You can use a ute to do push-ups. You can just use your, your body weight for, for exercises as well. So you do have to think a little bit outside the box. They know they're not sedentary, and so they know that wood chopping and they know that shearing is, is great for their movement. And then I think it's just about giving them advice about how to strengthen those muscles and, and just sort of reenact what the muscles that are needed to help them become stronger so that they can increase their productivity so they can work stronger and more effectively again once you start talking to them and and they have those light bulb moments and they see things around the farm you know like they see planks of wood that can be used for a bar for instead of a barbell or you know even step ups onto a water trough or anything like that like they start they start to think outside the box and that's where it gets really fun that's where you give them some ownership over it
13: Obviously, this is a Rural Women's Award for yourself. Do you work with men and women in different places and what sort of differences do you find in the way that people respond to fitness and mental health work?
12: Yeah, so we have our Farm Life Fitness community, which is the live online classes. And at the moment, it's it's just grown organically into um, a women's-only platform, a women's-only community. I didn't set out to do that at first it's just the way it's happened and and the more I do it the more I understand that that's what's needed because you know the language that we use and and the way that we can teach fitness and, and talk about things is very different between between the genders. I do think that the male population really 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 needs services like this and so I'm really keen um, to work more with them and I do I have one-on-one clients male farmers that I talk to about mental well-being, about time management. Um, I give them exercise if that's what's needed.
13: What do you think is the most important thing that people can take from this award and from perhaps the issues that you're trying to highlight in your business?
12: Basically, your health is your wealth. And we spend so much time on farms, like maintaining the health of our animals, maintaining the health of our livestock, maintaining the health of our machinery, because we need that for us to keep working every day. And I think that we are neglecting the health of our own bodies and our own minds. And without that, there's no point in uh, maintaining the health of your livestock or your machinery because if you're not 100%, nothing else is going to be. And I just want to keep the talk going about movement for mental health. I want to keep the talk going about mental health I don't want people to shy away from this topic. So I want paradigms to change about farming needs to be 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I understand it's a very, very, very hard thing um, to change our beliefs. And there are times when we have to, you know, um, go full throttle when it's harvest and seeding times. I do understand that. But there is also time to take stock. There's also time to breathe, And there's also time to give back to yourself because if you give back to yourself, you can give back to others um, so much more as
1: well. Congratulations to the 2022 AgriFutures Rural Women's Award winner here in WA, Louise O'Neill, and she was speaking to Angus McIntosh. She took out the award last night from a pool of three finalists, including pastoralist Debbie Dowden, who was nominated for her land regeneration work, and Dr Bronwyn Blake, a hemp farmer, who was there for her role starting the nation's first hemp growers cooperative. Quarter to one. Uh, just before one, Danny Burkett along going through the results of the wool market here in the West and on the East Coast. First, though, the Western Australian Government is setting up an Aboriginal Empowerment Unit within its Department of Mines, Industry Regulation and Safety. Mines Minister Bill Johnston hopes the unit will improve communication between the Department and
14: traditional owners native title is very critical to western australia and it impacts directly on the capacity for the government to issue mining tenements so this aboriginal empowerment unit will work with aboriginal people to make sure there's a clear understanding of uh, the role of traditional owners in the mining sector in western australia and to make sure that there's good communication and information
5: and who's going to make up that team that, that forms that unit?
14: Uh, they'll be employees of the department and obviously you know, it would be our intention to hire Indigenous people into the unit.
5: What sort of input or influence will this unit have when it comes to proposals and, and projects within the mining sector?
14: Well, it, it's it's for mining companies and others to make proposals for mining projects in the sector, but Aboriginal people have a very important role to play. And they need to have the information available to them so that they can make whatever decisions they want to in respect of those uh, proposals. And it's also important that they understand what uh, role they can play. This is about making sure that uh, in the government making decisions about our responsibilities and in terms of traditional owners and their rights under the native title legislation, that there's a proper set of information, there's a proper understanding, uh, there's proper engagement. Uh, that's, that's the whole purpose of this unit.
5: What sort of communication have you had with traditional owners and with industry on the formation of this unit?
14: We've been engaging extensively with traditional owner groups. Uh, we have regular meetings with uh, native title parties. We have uh, meetings with land councils, with uh, um, you know broader Indigenous representative groups. The government has set up a formal engagement process through the Department of Premier and Cabinet with uh, Aboriginal groups across Western Australia and this uh, unit comes out of that engagement. Under native title, you can't issue a tenement uh, in the mining sector without a process engaging traditional owners and we want to make sure that those engagements are better and stronger.
1: Mines and Petroleum Minister Bill Johnston speaking to Steph Sinclair about the new Aboriginal Empowerment Unit that's being set up. $14.6 million will be spent developing the unit over the next four years and the Minister says eventually 29 jobs will be created. Twelve minutes to one. Well, after just eight months in the top job, Sea Farms CEO and Executive Chairman Mick McMahon has quit. It comes just weeks after the former Ingham's chicken boss handed down a scathing review into the company's plan to build the world's biggest prawn farm at a remote station near Kununara During an investor briefing on the review, Mick McMahon said plans to produce more than 100,000 tonnes of black tiger prawns at Lejeune Station were unviable and he apologised to shareholders who'd invested in the company. Mick McMahon suggested others involved in the project should also take responsibility for their actions. The harsh critique of the project prompted its biggest investor and fellow director, Ian Traer, to submit a request to remove Mick McMahon from the board. An extraordinary general meeting was scheduled for June 20 to vote on his future. That's now been scrapped. And Ian Traer will replace Mick McMahon as Farms non-executive chair. The company says it will announce its new chair in due course. 11 minutes to one.
9: You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA.
1: Now, here's a question for you. Should the federal government further restrict foreign ownership of Australian agricultural land? If you've done the ABC's Vote Compass survey, you will have already answered that question. And the data is in and it shows 88% of voters say there should be more restrictions on foreign farm ownership. The Victorian Farmers Federation President, Emma Germano, says she isn't surprised by the results.
15: No, I guess it's in no way surprising, particularly if we look at um, the geopolitical environment that we find ourselves in and that that changing landscape internationally. you know, makes absolute sense to me that Australians would feel that way.
5: And as somebody in the industry, is foreign ownership something to be feared?
15: I think it's really important that we are always thinking about what the national interest is. So in some cases, yes, foreign ownership is something that's a threat to Australia, but in many cases, we actually have to be considering that foreign investment um, as a means to grow the agriculture industry. And it has indeed done that for us over the last you know, decade and more. Um, so there's a, there's a balance between the national interest and also, also making sure that we've got that investment um, in the industry.
5: And when people see those words, foreign ownership,
15: do you think they think China? I think that's exactly what they think. And I think that that's where the fear is coming from. And while there's that changing sentiment over time, it's probably more specific about this country or that country rather than the notion of foreign investment um, as a pure, you know, theoretical principle in and of itself.
5: In your part of the world, are you aware of perhaps which countries make up the foreign ownership
15: of the land there? what I can tell you without telling you which which countries are where and and knowing that actually probably China is less than what maybe people would assume, um, that we as an organisation and through the National Farmers Federation also have really fought to ensure that there is a meaningful register of that foreign ownership and that foreign investment. It's actually really, really important that we have that information quick at hand so that we can shed the light on what's going on and the threats and the risks to Australia at any point in time. So, Whilst we have an opposed foreign investment and foreign ownership for the reasons that I outlined that it's important to our industry, we absolutely need a strong national register so that we can be measuring these things in real time and if there needs to be a policy shift that it can happen um, quickly enough to make an impact or to avert risk.
5: There are obviously a lot of people who see farming as something that if you're not born into it these days, it's too expensive to get in. You know, the median price of Australian farmland is at $7,000 a hectare as of last year, Mm -hmm. according to Elders and CoreLogic. If you were a young farmer and you saw foreign ownership of Australian farms, would that be hard to take? Is that one of the reasons that people perhaps have these
15: feelings? Absolutely, I think that in Australia, um, we as Australians feel like you know it, it's right that we kind of come first to the natural national, sorry, national in- interest. Of course, there are many things to unpick in the question that you just asked. Because actually, what I think is really important is to ensure that we don't have an environment where. Um, actually, if you're a foreign owner, that it's that it's easier um, to be in the Australian market, and we should be incentivising young Australians, uh, you know, transgenerational farmers, um, even our Australian super funds and investment firms we should be making sure that there are incentives in place, whether that's through the taxation system or, or you know, other um, political means to, to achieve those incentives because, of course, I think everybody would agree that where an Australian either company or person can afford to purchase that land and, and be, the, you know, the, the recipient and beneficiary of that land, we would all agree, I think, that that's a, a positive thing. Uh, we just can't, I think put a policy position in place, let's say like ban all foreign ownership, that would be detrimental to the Australian agriculture industry, that would be detrimental to the Australian economy. So we've actually got to get those policy settings right where you do create an environment where Australians have a great opportunity to purchase that land, be them young Australians or conglomerates or super funds or or anything else.
1: Victorian Farmers Federation President Emma Germano is speaking with national regional reporter Eliza Borello. 7 to 1. News for you at 1. Just before that, a wrap of the wool market. First, though, in the last few years, a lot of Australian farmers have had to think outside the box to find enough suitable workers for seasonal jobs. Jerry Clune certainly did that. About three years ago, he asked 60-year-old lone sailor Robin Brown to work on his grain farm just east of Geraldton. Things obviously went well because Robin Brown still works on the farm but he hasn't given up his yachting lifestyle.
11: I was up in uh, Ningaloo Reef and I'd spent some time in Coral Bay and um, cycling season was coming so I had to sail south. I sailed into Geraldton. It's a good, safe anchorage in um, Home Bay here. I heard it was harvest season and had a coffee and I met uh, Jerry's daughter-in-law Nicole got talking and I said to her I was looking for work and she took my number and and Jerry contacted me. He's a yachtsman and he
0: is a solo sailor so I thought anyone who can go out into an open ocean and look after themselves they've obviously got to be pretty resourceful so went and had a coffee with him and um, yeah we sort of came to an agreement to come out and have a go work with us.
11: Well in the morning I I get up about five o'clock when the sun sun starts slowly rising. And um, make a coffee, pot of coffee, two cups of coffee at <laughs> the start the day. And uh, paddle ashore, it's at 7.30. Block um, up the kayak, and then drive into work, which is about 25 minutes from the beach here to New uh, Marakara, the farm. And we have a, a meeting in the morning there, and um, Jerry and, and Frank sort of brief us on what we're going to do during the day. Being on a yacht, you have to be, yeah, resourceful, resilient, um, and independent, and you've got to rely on your own wits. If something breaks, you've got to fix it. And that helps on the farm because it, you can problem solve when something breaks. Yeah, we had. Uh, Harvest fire, I was watching the header and within five minutes, there was quite large flames coming out the back. A bearing had overheated. It was 35 degrees and we're in a, a bit of a gully. The wind was sort of picking up southerly winds, about 25 knots. And I radioed Jerry straight away, fire, Jerry, get the fire truck, here." Which is quite um, a scary, you know, situation. It, because the flames are quite large and, and it was getting away. We almost put it out. But if it wasn't for a community of neighbours and other people that come and fought the fire that day, it would be still burning. The, the, my hat goes off to the, the people that fight these fires, because it does take courage, it, it, you know. It, um, yeah, fire. I think I prefer the water. <laughs>
1: Robin Brown and Jerry Clune in that story, put together by the ABC's Cecile O'Connor. And you can see it on ABC TV's Landline program this Sunday. Three to one, just in response to the news today that the historic timber mill at Greenbushes has announced that the facility will be closing with more than 50 employees to lose their job. In response to that, this from Seb in Jerry: The Greens must be celebrating that Chairman McGowan has put 50 people out of work as well as shutting down a Western Australian business. Perhaps parklands can import timber such as teak from clear felled forest in Southeast Asia. The 50 employees can be employed distributing the imported timber throughout the state. Parklands can then resume milling timber from mature plantations in another 40 years couple of minutes to one to the wool market now and it looks like it was a good week to be selling wool. The eastern market indicator up 24 cents to close at 1,401 cents a kilo clean and the western market indicator up 43 cents to close at 1,473. Danny Burkett, how did you see it?
16: It yeah, was very good market in the two days, and through the, through the three centres in Fremantle, 18 micron up 25 for the week, week closing at 21.25. 19s were up 45 for the week, closing at 1700 flat. 20 microns on the close, 14.10, that was up 25. 21 and 22 micron, both up 45 clean for the week, add that to the 30 clean last week. It's fantastic fortnight for those medium types. 21s closed at 13.40, 22s at 13.15. Pieces and bellies on the finer end up 60 cents, on the medium types up nearly a dollar clean. So the relationship in price now between fleece and pieces is almost back to normal. I would suggest that's uh, more so around the availability of some freer types of pieces. Locks up 60, 60, crutchings up 80, stains up 80, lambs and wieners again the star of the market, fully firm as they have been for roughly eight months. We still do have a two tiered market in place. The lower yielding wools, however, performed a touch better than last week, although those with high VM, low yields, are still feeling the, uh, the brunt of uh, some pretty heavy discounts in the market.
1: Danny, who was buying this week?
16: Techwool, uh, 16% Merino fleece wool uh, across the country. If we look at that in dollars, just the Merino fleece wool, that's probably 6.5 million. Uh, worth noting, they're the fourth largest buyers in the cross spread, the largest buyers in the skirting and the fourth largest buyers in the oddlet. So very strong again. A good to note, there was a good spread of buyers underneath tech this week. We had Morris, TNU, Fox & Lily, United, uh, Endeavour, Wool, Sequoia and Mellor. So great to see a good spread underneath that leading buyer.
1: Ten seconds. How many bells next week?
16: 42500 spread between Sydney, Melbourne and Fremantle. That bears very well for the wool market.
1: Danny, thank you so much. It is time for the news, one o'clock.
9: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.